you can grab your Bibles and we're going to flip to uh, the great Italian prophet Malachi. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Some pronounce it Malachi. Um, it's the last book in the Old Testament. He is the last of the minor prophets. In the Bible, you have major prophets and minor prophets, and they call them major and minor not because of importance, but because of size. And so major prophets are large books. Minor prophets are just smaller prophecies. And so Malachi is the last of the minor prophets, the last book of the Old Testament. Let's get some context before we jump into Malachi chapter 1. And uh, if you uh, have a hard time finding, just flip to Matthew and, and turn over one page and you'll be in Malachi. And, um, but we don't know really a ton about Malachi. We don't have a lot of personal information about him other than he was a prophet of God and his name means my messenger, which I think is fitting for a prophet, right? Malachi means my messenger. He's a prophet of the Lord. And he prophesied either um, near the end of Nehemiah's time as governor or right after it. Okay, We're not 100% sure exactly when, but all the clues that we have historically put him right at the end or right after Nehemiah's time as governor uh, of Israel, Jerusalem. And so um, we just studied Nehemiah the last two weeks, so we should be pretty familiar with the history of Israel by now. But if uh, this is your first time or if you're new with us, I'm, I'm glad you're here and, and we want to catch you up too. And so Nehemiah is the last uh, narrative before the New Testament. So the book of Nehemiah is the last story, narrative story, of what happened before the New Testament. But Malachi is the last prophetic message before the New Testament. And um, Malachi, now after, after Malachi came 400 years of silence. So we're right around the 400 BC mark, and then there's 400 years of silence, no word from God until, until Jesus shows up on the scene, or really John the Baptist to begin to prepare the way for Jesus. And um, it's the last message, it's an important message. The Israelites, as we've studied, they, have, uh, they were conquered by uh, Babylon, at least Judah was. They were conquered by Babylon, uh, spent decades in exile. They were, Babylon was overtaken by Persia. And then one of the Persian kings allowed Israel to go back to Jerusalem. And so they've returned from exile now, and they began to build back the city and, and uh, they, would build, they built the temple, rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah came and rebuilt the wall. Last week we saw they had a big revival and had a spiritual awakening. And so this right now uh, with Malachi, he comes in a hundred years after they've returned from exile. And so um, there's been a generation that came and went. And even though last week they had this incredible revival that we studied where they all... Uh, made a commitment, a fresh commitment to the word of God and, and repentance and sought the Lord and, and began to reinstitute the festivals of the Lord. What happened was, over the generations, that they became um, lazy, spiritually lazy and apathetic. They uh, were morally lazy. And now God is going to speak, and it's interesting, of the 55 verses in the book of Malachi, there's 55, if you add them all up, in the book of Malachi, 47 of them are 
first person from the Lord. Malachi speaking for the Lord. So 47 of the 55 verses are directly from God in first person. And so he's giving this message to them. There's very little commentary in the book of Malachi. There's very little other conversations. It's really God calls them out in the book of Malachi. God calls them out for things. And then they respond with questions. So throughout, if you read the book of Malachi, you'll see God says something. He kind of uh, uh, rebukes them about something, and they, they issue this question. And, and the questions are not um, innocent curiosity. The questions are not, oh, help me understand more, Lord, so we can do better. The questions are um, sarcastic uh, disputes. Uh, kind of like whenever you get in, in, in an argument with your spouse and you accuse them of something. I don't like when you do that. And they're like, what, show, give me one example. Give me one example of when I've ever done that. And so that's what's happening here is the Lord is saying, you have done this. And they're like, show me. Give me one example, Lord. When have we ever done that? I, we don't do that. And so that's what's happening in the book of Malachi. Now, I have to tell you kind of right up front is, is that this book is heavy. Right? It's, 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 kind of, it's a rebuke. It's God trying to call them back to faithful living. And, um, and so the sermon's going to be heavy. It's going to be a hard topic. It's going to be hard stuff. And, and we can't, my wife and I, Cammie and I, were talking about how it seems like every potluck, I'm assigned like a heavy message from the Lord. I don't know what it is. It's like we get something really weighty, and then we have to look each other in the eyes and eat. And, and just wonder what's going on. And so I recognize that's what's happening. If you want a joyful message, come next week. We're getting into the New Testament next week. It's going to be great. But, but this one's going to be hard. Let's read Malachi 1, uh, verse 6 through 14, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Malachi 1, 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice is that not evil and when you offer those that are lame or sick is that not evil present that to your governor will he accept you or show you favor says the lord of hosts and now entreat the favor of god that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you says the lord of hosts oh that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering from my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and that it is uh, that its food may be despised, but you say, what a weariness this is. 
and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and who vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, God, I do thank you that you've gathered us around your word today, and I pray that you would speak to us. Father, I pray that you would give us um, a heart to receive a correcting word today. I pray that you would allow us to take some time this morning to reflect on our worship of you, our heart for you, God. And I pray that you would pull us back to a fully devoted life, heart, mind, soul, totally devoted to you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a miraculous work in this place. I pray that you'd speak through me today, Lord. I need you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard it said, or maybe you have said yourself, um, man, I love God more than anything else. I love God more than anything else. Or maybe you said, God is the most important thing in my life. God's the most important thing. I think many of us have said that, uh, many sincerely. But the question is, like, is that true? Is that true? Does it show in the quality of our worship and service of the Lord? Would, would my actions, would my behavior, would my life reflect that statement that God really is the most important thing uh, in all the world to me? See, God in this text, he is going to challenge that idea. He is going to call out the priests for worthless worship. That's the title. Fun title, Worthless Worship. Making known that God doesn't just accept everything that's offered to him. So he's calling out the Israelites in general, and then more importantly, the, the priests who are responsible for the worship of the Lord. And actually, he'll say in verse 9 and 10, as you've, you've seen, he says, Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were among you whom would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on the altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hands. Isn't that so strong that God says to them, it would be better for you to just shut the doors of the temple than to bring me these offerings that you're bringing me. That's strong. He's like, look, the worship that you're offering is worthless. I am not going to accept it. And so we are faced with reality today that God doesn't accept all things that are offered to him. May my aim for us today is that we would examine our current state of worship so that we can determine whether it is worthy or worthless. And so what does worthless worship look like? There's two points today. 
What does worthless worship look like? The first one is this, uh, the worthless actions of worship. Worthless actions of worship. This is giving God the leftovers. Giving God the leftovers. Verse 7 says, By offering polluted offerings on my food, offering polluted food on my altar, but you say, How we polluted you? But saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes, it is evil. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So they're giving him polluted animals, blind animals, lame animals, sick animals. And this was uh, back in the day where there was still sacrifice. We'd sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of sins. And this whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was pointing towards the cross where Jesus would eventually die on the cross for the sins of the world. And he would ultimately become the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And so the whole Old Testament system is really pointing towards the ultimate fulfillment in Christ on the cross. But until then... God has given them a, a gracious provision so that by sacrificing an innocent animal that they can cover then the sins of people, sinful people. And one animal would, be, would cover up to 10 people in a family. So by sacrificing innocents, you could cover the sins, at least temporarily, of the people, God would receive that by, uh, as you righteous because of that sacrifice by faith looking towards the cross. Today, we live in the New Testament era where we're, we're post the cross. And so now Jesus is the sacrifice that covers our sins. We no longer sacrifice animals. But they were charged with bringing perfect sacrifices. If you're going to cover the sins of all, 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 your, all your sins, you had to have an innocent animal, blemish, without blemish, perfect, the best of the flock. And they were bringing defective animals. They were bringing like their lame and their sick animals and their one-eyed animal, you know, it was like, eh, you know, it was like they're bringing the worst of the worst, the stuff that you'd probably, we're going to get, we're going to go take him out back, you know, and uh, get him out of the flock before he breeds with anybody. They're, they're, they're giving him the trash, of their flock. And uh, passages like Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 15 clearly prohibit offering blemished sacrifices. That's why he says, is it not evil that you're doing that? Of course it's evil because you're commanded not to do this. Um, these animals were considered ceremonial, ritually unclean. Therefore, they're, they're contaminated. And whenever you offer them on the altar of the Lord, you're then making the altar unclean. You're contaminating, polluting, is the language he uses here, the altar of the Lord. And it was the job of the priest to prevent this from happening. One of the roles of the priest was to vet the offerings that were being made to make sure that they met all the requirements for an appropriate offering. And they were falling down on the job. And so this is an indictment of the nation for bringing these offerings. But it's also him uh, holding account the leaders who are allowing this to happen. And so this passage, it does, I think, address both all people, all worshipers, 
but especially maybe a higher standard for leaders. If you're in any form of leadership, spiritual leadership, maybe you lead a, a small group or a ministry team, or maybe you are a parent or a teacher or, or a boss. You have some form of leadership. He's like, hey, you have, there's a higher standard for you. You're going to be held to a higher account. God's going to look at you and say, what are you allowing to go on underneath you? And if you don't do the hard things to keep things in line, it's going to be not go so well for you. So verse 13 and 14, he kind of reiterates the same thing. He says, but you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts, because you bring what has been taken by violence or what is lame and sick, and you bring it as your offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has made the male of his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among uh, the nations. He's like, you're offering, me th- he, he's, you're offering me things that you took by violence. You're offering me things that you stole. This would be like a bank robber after he's robbed the bank, tithing off of the, off of the loot, right? It's like, no! What are you doing? And he says, so you, you've taken, you're offering things that you stole, and then he's like, you're saying you're giving your best. You bring in the, you, show, you, you prounce around the best of your flock, but then what you actually bring to the fire is the blemished one. You're making it look like you're doing the right thing, but in reality, behind the scenes, you're not really doing the right thing. The New Testament example of this would be Ananias and Sapphira, who they go uh, to, everybody's bringing their offerings to the church, and so they're like, oh, we want to do that, and we want to look good, so they sell a piece of land, and they say, look, we gave all from the sale of our land, and everybody's like, ooh, aren't they holy? Look how spiritual these people are. What a sacrifice, but they actually held some back. You know what happened? God, like, killed them dead, right? Like, boom. Sapphira, Ananias, he's down. Sapphira comes in. Hey, did it? Yep, boom, you're dead too. And so God like really takes seriously the whole not lying about your worship, not lying about your offering. And so that's what's going on here. We're going to make everybody think we're giving the best, but we're actually going to give the worst. He's like, this is evil. This is evil. Verse 8, he says, you, <laughs> look at this. He says, um, when you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? When you offer those who are lame and sick, is this not evil? You, would you present this to your governor? Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord? Like, say the governor said, hey, hey, I want to throw a party. I'm going to invite you to my party at the governor's palace. And you show up and you bring a present. And he's like, if you brought the lame, sick, dying lamb, would you give that to your governor? Of course not. Because you give nice things to people you're trying to impress. You give nice things, the best things, to the people that you care about and that you, that you think highly of. He's like, in the sense he's saying, you're treating me worse than, than even your human relationships. Sometimes we just do great for ourselves and for those who we care about and we Give God the least. Sometimes we'll, how come it is that many times we, when we buy school supplies for our kids, we go to the Walmart. The Walmart, like that's not a fancy place. Where else do you buy school supplies? But 
go to the Walmart, but then when you buy school supplies for a school supply drive, you go to the Dollar Tree. How come whenever you know, you're on time to work, you're on time to school, and then you're some of the time at church? How come maybe you, you, you're eating a steak dinner at your house, but then the next day you're supposed to bring some food to the food drive, and so you go find that old expired can of Spam, you're not really sure why you even bought it, but then you grab that, and you're like, oh, this is going to go to the food drive. How come it is that whenever we're buying stuff for ourselves or for those that we love, like we get nice things, we spend the money that we need, but whenever it comes to like contributing to the church or the homeless or the poor, somehow we all get all of us get really frugal all of a sudden. I don't know. You might say, how is that even related to worship? And it's because Jesus said, when you've done this to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so what we do in these acts of generosity or service, it's as we're doing them to the Lord. And he's like, you need to be careful because you are treating celebrities, politicians, loved ones, yourself better than you're treating the Lord. And he is a great king. The idea here is that he's he's like, give God your best. Give God your best. Our temptation as people is to give God what's convenient and easy, not what is best. It seems like oftentimes we give God the leftovers. We give God the leftovers. There's kind of a traditional grid for service to God or, or, or generosity towards the Lord. It's, you know, your time, your talent, and your treasure. And so many times we give God our leftover time. Uh, if I have time left over, then I'll give it to you. If, if at the end of the day, if I'm not tired and I got a few minutes to spend some time with you, that's what I'll give it to you. I'm not going to carve out any significant time throughout the day to devote to you, like to give you my best time. I'm just going to give you what's left over if there's any time left over. And I'm not saying you have to have your quiet time in the morning. I'm saying give God your best time. Maybe you're at best in the evening or in the afternoon. Give God your best time. But oftentimes we give him our leftover. We give God our leftover a talent, don't we, where we say, if I have any energy and if my schedule works out and everything falls together just perfectly, then I'll serve. Then I'll give God my ability, my, tr- my talent or, or treasure. Give God my leftover treasure. Yeah, at the end of the month, after I've paid all my bills, after I've done all the things that I want to do, if I have some money left over, I'll throw a few bucks in the offering plate. If I have some left over. Yeah, I know I'll spend money on my nice car and my nice house and vacations and all those things. But when it comes to the Lord, if I have any left over, I'll give some to him. And he's like, that's not... That's not great. How, how come, I'm just kind of just reflecting on how come um, the church seems to always get the hand-me-downs? You ever notice that? As someone who works at the church, I've noticed that, like, we still have, in the building today, we still have those old box televisions, right, that, that we haven't had for 20 years. Like, we, we still have those old box televisions because whenever all of us were getting the new flat-screen television, what we did with our old box television that we couldn't sell 
is we gave it to the church. And so now we still have the old box televisions. And I'm not, I'm not trying to sound ungrateful by any means. I, I've just yet to see anyone show up with like a brand new 70-inch flat screen TV and like, hey, I just wanted to donate this to the church. I think y'all could use it. How come it seems like whenever we are wanting to throw something out, but we don't want the guilt of throwing it away, so we say, I know what I'll do. I'll give it to the church. How come the church seems to always get the hand-me-downs? And again, I'm not trying to sound ungrateful. I just have to wonder if that is a symptom of our heart, if that is a symptom of how we view God that he doesn't deserve the new thing. He deserves the old thing, because I deserve the new thing. And again, there's nothing wrong with buying yourself new stuff, guys. Apparently, these priests had deluded themselves into thinking that when it came to worship and offerings, that something was better than nothing, that lukewarm was better than cold. Yet not everything offered to God as worship is accepted by God as worship. God, it seems like in this passage, would prefer no worship over half-hearted worship. He preferred just not, have you ever, have you ever like gone to a restaurant and they, you're just craving something and you go and you ask for it and then they don't have it. And, and so you, instead of like ordering something else, you're just like, never mind. You pull up to the Burger King, you've been craving a Whopper. I don't know if you've ever craved a Whopper. Probably not. You wouldn't admit it in public. But you, you go there. Somehow they're still in business. People are still eating there. So you go to the Burger King. You've been cra- you smell it. I mean, you ever drive to Burger King? You smell it. You're craving it. You get to the, you go to order it. I will have the Whopper. No, give me a double Whopper. And they respond and say, sorry, we're out of burgers. And you're like, what? You're Burger King. Do you say, oh, just give me the chicken? No, you're at Burger King. You say, never mind, and you drive away. Because sometimes when you desire one thing, the lesser thing does not satisfy you, and you're better off without it. And so God's like, if you're not going to give me the best, if you're not going to give me your best, just don't, just don't bother. If we fail to worship God, he will find someone who will worship him. But he will be worshiped. Look at verse 11. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Hosts. So he's like, don't fool yourself into thinking that God somehow needs your worship. Like he's a desperate beggar, just please give me something. Give me the scraps of your worship. Just give me something. That's not who God is. He's like, I am a great king, and my name will be great among the nations, and people will offer pure sacrifices to me among the nations. So don't think he wants our worship, but he's not dependent on our worship. 
When Jesus had the triumphal entry, he got on the back of a donkey, he rode into Jerusalem, and people were throwing down palm branches. They were praising him, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the Pharisees were like, Jesus, tell them to stop. This is heresy. Jesus said, if they don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. I will be praised. I will be worshipped. And if they don't do it, it's going to happen. And so let's not view God as, I mean, he's worthy of our best, not our leftovers. God is not the goodwill. God is not the goodwill. He's not the beggar on the side of the street. It's not beggars can't be choosers. There is worship that he requires. And he will not accept anything less. And so he's like, don't phone it in. Don't give the leftovers. Don't half-hearted. Like, give it all. I think it is important to point out that God doesn't want the best as much as he wants your best. I think that if all they would have had was like the sickly animals, it wouldn't have been a deal. It was the fact that they had a great flock and they gave the least of it. I don't think if they I think if they just had all they had, if they just brought just what they had, I think it would have not been an issue because in the New Testament we have Jesus when he's watching people give offerings in the temple and he sees all these people out of their wealth giving offerings. He's like, oh yeah, that's well and good. But then he sees this widow who just has a couple of pennies and she gives it to the offering and he's like, she has given more than any of them because she gave her best. So it's not, he's not saying, I, I demand the best there is. He's I demand your best. It's the difference between extravagance and excellence. Extravagance is I'm, I'm the best that money can buy. Excellence is the best that you can do with what you have. And God de- deserves and is worthy and demands excellence in worship, that we give him the best of what we have. We don't give them half-hearted, the leftovers, whatever might be left at the end of the day. You might not be able to give God the best, but you can give God your best. Let me ask you, church, do we offer God our best in worship today? Or do we just go through the motions? I love that song we sang, Nate and uh, Tito led us in, you know, I'm sorry when I've just gone through the motions, I'm sorry, when I just sing another song. And how many times we come in, we know the songs, we sing the songs, maybe mindlessly. And maybe we should say, I'm sorry, God. Robbie Gallaty would say, if there is, it says, there is no sacrifice. If there is no sacrifice in your sacrifice, it is not a sacrifice. If there is no sacrifice in your sacrifice, then it's not a sacrifice. It seems kind of self-explanatory. The idea is that we should give God the best. And at the sacrificial system, they would say, look, you have this, the best of your flock, the spotless lamb. He's perfect and beautiful. It's the one you most want to breed with so that you can continue this, but you don't breed it. 
you give it to God. You don't use it to make more money. You give it to God as a sacrifice, saying, I am giving you the best of what I have. And so maybe we can pray. Here's a prayer of reflection. God, help us give our best, not what's easy. Can we just pray that right now? Father God, I pray that you would forgive us of whenever we have offered you the leftovers of our life. I pray that you would help us to give our best to you today, not what's just easy. In Jesus' name. Well, here's the thing that we know is that actions stem from attitudes. Actions stem from from attitudes. So the gift that you give someone reflects what you think of the person. If, um, if you really value a person, you go out and you put a lot of thought and a lot of t- energy, to uh, money, to picking out the, the beautiful gift that you want to give them, and you wrap it, and you're excited, and you hand it to them, because you, you think a lot of that person. But if you give somebody the, a, a re-gift, if you re-gift something that was re-gifted to you, then you give it to, like, your nephew, it's, you're, you're going, like, I don't really think that much about you. The gift that you give to someone reflects what you think about someone. Are we on the same page? Because our, our actions are a result of our attitudes or our thoughts. And what does your generosity toward God say about what you actually think about him? That's actually what he's going to address next. Second thing is worthless attitudes of worship. Losing awe of God. Let's go back to verse 6. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if then I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priest, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised? How have we despised your name? He's like, you've dishonored me. You honor your father more than you honor me. You respect your boss more than you respect me. Israel's priests despised God's name, meaning that they showed contempt for God's person and character. The Hebrew word translated here, despise, means to accord little worth or to show utter contempt. They had lost the awe of God and they've lost all their honor and fear for God that he is due, that he is worthy of. He goes on to To go on further on this in verse 11 where he says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. A pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Verse 12 says, But you profane it. He's like, My name will be great. I will be awed among the nations. People will worship me and fear me and revere me and honor me. But you have profaned it. You've, you've, lost, you've lost something here. You don't take it seriously. You've gotten just casual about the majesty of God. And then he, he, got, he offers Levi as a positive example of what this should look like in chapter 2, verse 5, quickly. He says, my covenant with him, speaking of Levi, was one of life and peace. And I gave uh, gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He's like, this is the right response 
to God, that we are to awe his name, that we are to fear him and honor him and, and worship him and be in awe of him. He's like, but it's easy. It's easy to lose your awe. It's easy to lose the, the sparkle. It's easy to lose the fire that once was ignited whenever you were maybe a new Christian and you were all excited about the things of God and you were ready to storm the gates of hell with a water pistol, right? And then all of a sudden, you just, you lose it. He's like, it's easy to lose it. We should awe God, but oftentimes we look at verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. What he's saying here is, is, is you're treating worship of God as a chore instead of recognizing as a privilege. He's saying, what a weariness it is to worship God. There's, it's so hard to worship God. I'm getting so tired. And, and they're complaining about worshiping the Lord. It's become common and ordinary to them. They're, they're like, why is it so hard? And, we, and we, we do the same thing, don't we? Why do I got to wake up early to do the thing? Why do I got to serve on a Saturday? Why do I got to, and we, <clears throat> why do I got to stay after church and eat with people? Why do I got to do that? That's just what I say. I'm like, inverted little guy. So, why do we got to do this? It's wearisome. I'm tired. I'm worn out. Serving God is hard. Like, you forget the privilege? It is to serve the Lord. One of my first sermons from this stage, before I was ever pastor, interim, or anything, I just filled in for the pastor one day, and one of my first sermons was a sermon I entitled, Have To or Get To. Have To or Get To. And the premise of the message was that whenever things are new, you have this have to, you have this get to attitude about it. When things are new, you have a new job, you have a new relationship, whatever, you get to do Things. You, have, you have an excitement about it. You're joyous about it. But then as you do that thing over time, you get to where you now you're starting to say you have to. I have to go to work. I have to go to school. I have to go to church. And you begin to change your attitude about it. I mean, there's something different about like your first child your first child, you know, you're, 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 you're excited and you're protective. And every time they drop their passy, you're like, that one's going in the trash. Here's a new one. And it's, it's everything is so pillows all over them. Don't, you're not going to bump your head on anything. But then by the time you, you got your third child, and my second and third came at the same time. When you got your third child, you're like, or your fourth or fifth or whatever you have. You're like, they could drop the passy in the dirt. And you'd be like, nah, it's okay. All of a sudden, they're jumping off the, the, the couch. They're swinging from the chandeliers. You're drinking your coffee. Like there's something different that happens from the newness of your first child versus eventually all that newness kind of wears off and you kind of relax a little bit. Or maybe it's the difference between like dating and being married. You date and... You're infatuated with one another. You're spending all types of time together. You're holding hands. You're cuddling. You're making out where you're not supposed to. You're, 
You're spending all night on the phone talking for hours, and then you get married. And you could just get a text. Right? Or just an emoji. Right? And, and you're not holding hands anymore, right? And uh, it, it, it's, it can become like that. Um, there's something about familiarity that leads to apathy or indifference. Something about whenever you, you get used to something and it becomes common and familiar, all of a sudden you find yourself sliding into indifference about it or apathetic towards it. And, and he's like, don't do that with God. Are we too familiar with God? Is having the scriptures, a copy of the scriptures, personal copy, in our language, we have multiple maybe in your house, is having that becoming so common that you forget the treasure that is found here? Is having the freedom to come together without fear of persecution and worship the Lord for a little while on a Sunday morning, like is having that so familiar, you drive down the street, there's churches everywhere. Is having that familiarity, is that causing me to to lose some of the value in my mind of the, the priority of the gathered saints, the, the worship of the Lord every week. Like, are we becoming too familiar? I love what the psalmist prayed in Psalm 51.12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And how many of us need to pray that prayer? God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Like, spark it afresh in me. Restore that joy, that zeal. It's a privilege to serve God, and we should do so with joy and zeal, not with dread and complaint. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. We're, experts, we're expert complainers, aren't we? We're pretty good at that. Someone says, hey, how are things going this week? Well, let me tell you. And we, like, how come when somebody asks you about your week, your mind immediately goes to the worst things that happen throughout the week? How many times has someone asked you how things go and you immediately think, things are great. Let me tell you about what happened this week. How awesome it is to know the Lord. Lord, forgive me. What I find interesting, back to verse 6, he says, he says, as a, as a son honors his father, a servant his master, then if I am the father, where is my honor? Master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, the priest despised my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? The priests weren't even aware that they had despised the name of the Lord with their attitudes and their actions. It came on slowly. It came little uh, by little. They, they probably didn't even understand the extent of their offense, and they just continued to carry on as before, just going through the thing, going through the motions. They hadn't even realized how far they had gotten from the true, sincere worship of the Lord. They had slowly slid in despising God's name. And it, it, that's how it happens, y'all. That's why this message from Malachi is necessary. That's why it's necessary for our church is because you might be a faithful churchgoer, as they were. These were priests. Their job was to serve God vocationally. It's like, but you've lost something. 
You've lost the reverence, the honor, the awe of God, and you don't even know it. And so it's important for us, church, to take some time from time to time and have a message where we self-reflect and say, have I drifted? Reflect and evaluate my attitudes and actions of worship and say, am I giving leftovers to God? Have I lost the awe of God? Or Do I need to be restored to the joy of my salvation? How do we regain awe of God? How do we regain the awe of God um, if you've lost it? Uh, I would submit to you, we regain the awe of God by seeing the awesomeness of God. John Piper has, uh, defines worship this way. That worship, and I've, I've shared this with you before, that worship is seeing and savoring and expressing uh, the worth of God. So seeing, what are we giving our attention to? Uh, the savoring is your attitude towards it, and then the expression is um, your actions. And so seeing, savoring, and expressing the worth of God is what worship is. What are we to, to regain the savoring, the attitude of worship, that leads to then the actions of worship, the expressing? You have to start with the seeing. What are you giving your attention to? Uh, I, I've been riding motorcycles since I was like 17, and um, I, haven't, I haven't had one in a little while. Um, we'll be taking up an offering at the end of the service for that, but, but um, and I'll be asking you to give your best. No, I'm <laughs> but I'm kidding. So anyways, I've been riding motorcycles for a long time, and one of the things that you learn about riding motorcycles whenever you begin, and maybe you've learned this in other environments, this is when I learned it, is that you go where your eyes go. Is what they teach you riding a motorcycle. You go where your eyes go. So if you're going into a curve, you don't look right ahead of you as you're going through the curve. You look at where you want to be, end up in the other side of the curve because you're going to go where your eyes go. And it's important to know because if, you don't, if you're not you know, cognizant of where you're putting your eyes, you might go places you don't want to go. And there was one, I learned this the hard way, there was one time we were riding on an interstate and they were doing road work. So there's cones all over the place and we're riding on the interstate and they had this glorious like cross display on the side of the interstate. This gigantic cross and underneath it was like three crosses and it was beautiful. And I began to gaze at the beauty of this cross structure and then I look back forward and there's cones right in front of me. And I'm like, wow! You know, and I learned the hard way that you go where your eyes go. And it's true of our souls. It's true of our attitude of worship, that our hearts go where our eyes go, that our, that our affections, our attitude goes where our attention goes. And so how do we regain the awe of God? We set our eyes on the awesomeness of God. And so I just wanted to help you do that today by giving you a couple of verses about the awesomeness of God. Is that okay? They're not going to be on the screen. And maybe you have your own that you go to. Maybe you can add to this list. But I'm going to start in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 1 Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Psalm 18.3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Psalm 34.8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Notice that. I will set my attention on your wondrous works and on your majesty. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth of the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. 145.9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Psalm 147, 5. Great is the Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Nahum 1, 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We could not complete a list like this without sharing a bit about the goodness of God in Salvation in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. But taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died us. If you have lost the awe of God, I encourage you to spend some time setting your mind on the awesomeness of God. And all of our worship is worthless if not done in Christ. I don't want you to conclude today that you should only worship God when you're feeling 100% all in because we might not have anybody at church next week. Right? Because there's times where you're like, I'm here out of discipline to do the right thing. So I I don't think he's saying that that you're never going to have times where you're not totally feeling it. Ultimately, there's, there's nothing that I can bring that is worthy of our king. No matter if I bring my, like it's still not totally worthy of the king, the only thing that is totally worthy is the perfect and acceptable sacrifice for our sin in Jesus Christ. And it's only me worshiping God in Christ that I'm able to give him a worthy offering. It's actually what Malachi points us to. If you go to verse chapter 3 of Malachi, uh, quickly, chapter 3, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. You can write in your margin, John the Baptist or baptizer. 
I'll send a messenger, and he'll prepare the way for me. And the Lord, Jesus, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of the silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And he will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Verse 4, listen to this. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old as in former years. That it is in Christ that our worship becomes worthy. If you're not in Christ, there's nothing that you can give, no matter how hard you try, that is worthy of the Lord. It is only surrendering your life totally to the Lord and saying, "I look, I can't give much, but you know what I can give? I can give you all of me. I am all in. Here's a prayer we can pray in reflection of this point. God, help us to live with a growing sense of all for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that prayer right now that you would cause us to have a growing sense of awe for you. Restore to us the joy of our salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name. So church, rest in Christ, the perfect sacrifice for sin, the one who indwells and empowers us with the right attitude and actions for worship. Father in heaven, I, I do I, I thank you again, Lord, for your, your word. And I pray, Father, as this is a, a heavy word, a hard word, a rebuke in many ways, that it would actually lead us to a fuller expression of worship of you, God. And so, Lord, I do pray that all of us this, this day would reflect on what we are bringing, what we are offering. Are we bringing uh, our, our leftovers? I, I pray that you would forgive us of that and help us to give what's best, not what's just left. And, and do we have a, a poor attitude of worship? Are we giving you half-hearted worship? Are we, it's better something than nothing. Are we just so too familiar that it has led to indifference? God, I pray that you'd forgive us of that and help us to grow in a, a growing sense of awe of you, Lord. I pray that we'd give you what you deserve, which is all of us. You gave all of yourself. You sacrificed everything to give us life. I pray that we would then surrender all of our life to you, Jesus, to be used as you please. So, Father, I pray in the days and weeks and months come that as we find ourselves uh, just calling it in, mailing it in, and, and just giving you the leftovers, that you would convict us of that and restore to us worthy worship. You're worthy of it all, God. You're worthy of it all. The Spirit of the living God, Work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.